This is the One Verse Podcast, where we liberate scripture from religion, one verse at a time. Well, hello. This is the One Verse Podcast, and I'm your teacher for this podcast, Jeremy Myers. Thank you for joining me. In Matthew 3, verses 10, 11, and 12, John the Baptist warns his audience about the unquenchable fire that it is going to come upon them. And many people, when they hear John talk about this, think that he is referring to hell, people being sent to burn forever and ever in the unquenchable flames of everlasting torment of hell. Is that what John is talking about? Well, there's some contextual clues in the context that help us see what John is referring to, and that is what we are talking about today. So stick around and uh, maybe get your Bibles out. We'll be reading that text and studying it here in just a minute. Before we do that, though, I want to invite you to support my sponsors for this podcast. And guess who my sponsors are? (laughs) Well, it's sort of me, or maybe it's you. Listen, I I put out this podcast and lots of other resources, including my books and my discipleship group and my blog, all of the thousands of articles on my blog, to try to help you and encourage you in your life of following Jesus and with the questions that you might have about the Bible. And so if you appreciate some of these things that I put out, one way you can keep these things coming, keep the books coming, keep the podcast coming, is simply to buy some of my books. Uh, or join my online discipleship group by going to redeeminggod.com slash join. A lot of what I do does cost lots of money. And uh, so when you support the show in these ways and my publishing things in these ways uh, by, by buying books and so on, that helps me be able to continue to put them out. And it's really encouraging as well. Sometimes I get notes back. In fact, I got an email just today from a woman named Esther. I didn't get her permission to read this, but I hope it's okay, Esther. (laughs) Uh, And she wrote this to me. She says, Jeremy, you are awesome. The Lord has used you in my life. I have read Dying to Religion and Empire, and that book gave me insights and another perspective on tithing, baptism, communion that I never saw, and how religion has put the church in bondage. As I finish them, I will attempt to write a review. I have nine of your books. Thank you, Esther. That's just like that that so helps support my writing. Uh, I am reading each of them. They are so insightful. God has really blessed you as a teacher. You definitely need to be heard. Uh, Thanks to your revealed insights in your podcast, courses, books, I can think for myself with my own thoughts as I listen to others. I have a different paradigm of the Bible than I once had. I'm able to evaluate the performance-based religion that most Bible teachers preach and recognize the grace-filled teachings. You and others are not the norm, the ones God is using to make a difference. I know one day you will be. I am excited about the many resources that are available from you. I have learned so much and have still so much to understand. An important nugget for me is understanding the Bible is a book of wisdom, not a rule book. Be encouraged. God is using you to make a difference. Well, Esther, your email was very encouraging to me, so thank you so very much, and also for being part of my discipleship group, and also for buying nine books and reading them, and then for leaving the the reviews down the road. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you very much. So anyway, uh, if you want to be like Esther, a great biblical name as well, and support the show, those are some of the ways you can do it. Thank you so much. Now, let's get into our study 
of Matthew 3, verses 10 through 12. So this study is, uh, this passage is one of those which people think teaches about the unquenchable flames of hell. And so let's just read it uh, to begin with so that we know what we're talking about. And I'm reading from the New King James. And verses 10 through 12 say this. John is saying this. He says, And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I indeed baptized you with water unto repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Okay, so what is John talking about in this passage? Well, let's take care of a few sort of preliminary things, first of all. Some people, when they see this reference to good fruit, uh, right at the beginning of John's words, they think it's referring to whether or not a person has eternal life and that God looks at the works of their life, the good fruit, right, of their life to determine whether or not they're truly a Christian. And so some people use this passage to put fear in the minds of some believers that they might not really be a Christian because they don't have the right kinds of fruit or enough fruit. And really, they become what I call fruit inspectors, all right, going around trying to decide how much fruit is enough fruit and who has the right kind of fruit and if the fruit's ripe, okay, or rotten, and all of these sorts of things. And then they say, if you don't have the right kind of fruit, guess what? You are going to be sent off to burn forever in hell. And it's a really a terrible way of reading this passage, right? And uh, this misapplication of the text comes partly from misunderstanding of what the word fruit is referring to, but mostly this this image of fire that John is talking about all the way through this text. Okay, so if we understand the fire that John is referring to, here with them being burned with fire, and then this, uh, with baptism and fire that Jesus is going to have, uh, bring when he comes, and then this concept of the chaff being burned with unquenchable fire there at the end of the verse, we understand this image of fire in these verses then this whole passage is going to make a whole lot more sense. And also, we will no longer be given over to a spirit of fear by which we are afraid that if we don't do the right works or have enough works, something like that, then even if we love Jesus and love God and believed in Jesus and, 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 and all of those good things the Bible is inviting us to do, even if all that's true, but we don't have the good fruit, well, we might head off to hell. Okay, That's a horrible way, terrible way of reading this text. So let's just talk a little bit about what John is referring to in this passage. So in the context, uh, again, going before these verses that John is talking about here, going back, say, to verses 7 and 8, John warns the religious leaders that wrath is coming upon them and that they they could escape the wrath if they bear fruit worthy of repentance. Okay, now we could talk about wrath, and we could talk about the fruits of repentance and so on. It is a change in their behavior. Wrath, by the way, does not refer to hell. We'll see that more when we get into passages from Romans, Romans 1 and so on. But uh, wrath doesn't refer to hell either. Wrath refers to the temporal 
discipline, or we could even say the temporal consequences of sin in our lives here and now, on this world, in our lives now, all right? And then the fruits worthy of repentance, of course, are the, the change in behavior as well. But regardless, most scholars, and all scholars, pretty much recognize John's statement in Matthew 3, verses 7 to 8, as a prophecy about the destruction of Jerusalem. John is saying, hey, religious leaders and those who follow them, all of you who follow the religious leaders, destruction is coming. Israel, Jerusalem, your city, your way of life, your temple, it's all going to be destroyed unless you change your ways. Okay, now, with that in mind, there's no thought of hell here, right? At least in verses 7 and 8. Only of this temporal judgment upon the nation and the people of Israel if they don't change their ways. And I believe that based on this context, immediately preceding what John goes on to talk about in the following verses, all of the references to fire in verses 10, 11, and 12 must be understood in a similar way. All right? When John speaks of the axe being laid at the foot of the tree, he's saying that judgment is imminent. And he's specifically talking here to the ruling class of Israel, the religious leaders, especially because uh, he's talking about the root of the tree, and that goes back to prophetic imagery, for example, in Isaiah 11.1, where the religious leaders are talked about the root of the tree and so on. And so John is basically saying that the rulers of Israel— Uh, should change their ways, or they will be cut down and everybody who follows with them. So they need to repent. They need to change their behavior, okay? Or else judgment in this life, uh, destruction of their ways, their teachings, everything they've worked for in this life will come to an end, all right? Now, it's not just the rulers. Uh, The root of the tree represents the leaders of the nation. That's true. But uh, the tree itself represents the rest of the nation. And obviously, if you, if you chop away at the root of a tree, well, the rest of the tree withers and dies and um, becomes dead as well. All right? So, so that's this, this image of the, the tree and the root being cut. But the, the image of the wheat and the chaff is similar. All right? Now, we don't, or maybe you're not too familiar with the concept of separating wheat and chaff. But it was a very common concept in his day. And what they would do when they would go out and they would gather the wheat and the chaff together, you know, they're harvesting the wheat. And if you've ever seen wheat in the field, you know, it has this husk around each grain of wheat. And so they gather it all in this big pile uh, of wheat and chaff, and it's all together. And you don't want to eat the chaff. You want to separate the wheat from the chaff. And so they would put it all on this threshing floor. And then they would wait for a day when there might be a little gentle breeze, not too strong of a one, and they would go out and they would toss the wheat and the chaff up into the air, and the heavier grain, the wheat, would fall down, back down to the ground, and the light breeze would blow away the chaff, all right? Now, uh, one of the things they would do to help them with this was something called a winnowing fan. It was sort of a cross between maybe a rake and uh, a fan, okay? So it has a handle, and it looks like a rake on the end, sort of, except it would be filled in, maybe woven in with with, uh, something so that you could, like a fan, so that you could create a small breeze 
when you threw the grain up into the air. So you would throw it up into the air, and then the 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 act, the motion of tossing the grain up into the air with this winnowing fan tool would create a little breeze, which would then blow the chaff away. So that's this image here of the grain and the chaff and the winnowing fan and so on. Now, what typically happened, as you can imagine, if they have a huge pile of this wheat and chaff, then the chaff would get blown off to one side. And often in times at the, at the threshing floor, there would be a little wall, a short wall uh, on one side where the chaff would gather. It would pile up over there. Or even if it didn't, by the time it fell back down to the ground, eventually it's all going to pile up in these, in these rows and piles off to the side. And what are you going to do with that? You really don't want it blowing back into your grain because you just separated it. And so what they would typically do is they would light it on fire. Once a, enough of it had gathered, they would just put it to the put a little um, some fire to it. And because it was so light and there's nothing to this chaff, all right, it would just burn away. It's so insubstantial, it burns quickly. And because it's so insubstantial, it hardly even leaves any ash behind. So once the chaff is burned, there's almost no evidence that it ever existed whatsoever. And John is saying that this is what will happen to the religious leaders and to those who follow them if they do not repent and turn to follow God. There's, John is saying, if you don't repent and have the fruits of repentance, worthy of repentance, then your life, everything you've worked for, everything you've accomplished, everything you tried to do in life, it's all going to be like chaff that gets burned up. There will be, it, will, it will disappear in a day, in a flash of heat, and then there will be no trace of it left afterwards. Now, this is a really challenging teaching for the Jewish people. They were very content and happy with the prophets, the Old Testament prophets, using this sort of terminology to talk about the Gentile nations, but they were not comfortable, not familiar. They didn't like it when the prophets, like John here, said that the similar things could happen to them as the Jewish people, as God's chosen people. But that is what John is preaching. It would be like a pastor coming along today, and we're happy to, you know, some churches are happy to condemn certain sinners or other religious groups or other nations or, you know, other people with political affiliations or whatever. But as soon as a pastor or somebody starts saying similar things about Christians in church, well, that pastor probably will be without a job fairly quickly. Right? But that is what John was doing. He was taking the imagery, the terminology, the ideas that the Jewish people typically only thought of as applying to Gentile dogs, right? these evil Gentiles, and John is turning around and saying, no, the same thing applies to you, you Jewish leaders, you religious leaders. All right? Yes, the Gentiles are in need of repentance, but so are you. All right, And so that is what John is talking about here. By the way, this is not about gaining eternal life. John is not telling them anything about eternal life. He's not warning them about eternal punishment or, or suffering or torment in hell. And he's also not telling them, if you want to go to heaven, you need to repent and, and turn from your sins and start doing good things. Because that would be a works-based gospel, wouldn't it? If John is saying, here's how you escape hell and go to heaven when you die, then what John is telling them is, you need to stop sinning and start obeying God. 
And if that's the case, then John is telling them that they can earn their way or work their way to eternal life. And we know that's not true. Eternal life is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. So again, John's not ha- he doesn't have eternal destinies in mind here. He's talking about temporal consequences for disobedient or disobedience. And he's saying, look, judgment, discipline, uh, wrath um, is coming if you don't change your ways, religious Jewish leaders and those who follow them. All right? A very challenging idea. Okay, so with that sort of overview in mind, now we can look specifically at a few of the specific phrases that John uses. So what about this concept of being thrown into the fire that John mentions there? All right, John says they will be thrown into the fire. That's Matthew 3.10. All right, he's not talking about being thrown into the fires of hell. Uh, In the context here, he's talking about cutting down a tree, which then gets burned. If you've ever cut down a tree, you know what you generally are having going to do with a tree once it's cut down. You're going to trim off the branches and the leaves. Those get tossed immediately into some sort of uh, pile, usually to be burned. They don't burn super long. Sometimes the planks of the, of the wood and the tree are, are going to be used for construction or building or so on. But if the tree's bad, then it will get burned as well. John is saying that the, the, the Israel's leaders and those who follow their teaching, uh, that if they don't repent then they will be cut down and burned. In other words, rather than be useful for construction, okay, they once cut down, they will find that they are useless and they won't be able to be used to build or construct anything. Instead, they will just be fit for nothing but being thrown into the fire and burned. All right, and that is, again, prophetic warning about what's going to happen in Jerusalem. What they are working for, what they are trying to accomplish, is nothing. It's worthless. And John is saying, unless you change, when the tree is cut down, there won't be anything worthwhile on it to be used for building. All right, so change your ways. Have fruit. Become a good, solid tree, which can be used uh, for various construction projects by God, we could maybe say. All right, what about the baptism by fire? Uh, that Jesus, or sorry, that John talks about in verse 11. Well, this can be understood in a similar way. Uh, it does not refer, in my opinion, to the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. I know that tongues of fire do come upon the apostles who are in the upper room, and they do start speaking in tongues, but uh, I don't think that that is what John is referring to here. Uh, he is talking about the Holy Spirit, and then the fire source uh, seems to be something different, a baptism of fire, maybe we could say. And I think in this case, based on the context, it's referring to the impending judgment on Israel. Uh, baptism, I do talk about this a lot in my Gospel Dictionary online course, where uh, we do learn that baptism is a Greek word, baptizo. And it simply means immersion, to be immersed. So every time you see the word baptism in the Bible, just get rid of it. Don't get rid of it, but retranslate it in your mind to immersion or to be immersed. And then look in the context and say, well, immersed into what? Immersion into what? And you'll discover there are dry baptisms and wet baptisms. And, you know, there's lots of baptisms in the Bible where there's not a drop of water in sight. And uh, here's one example. We're not talking about water baptism or even probably spirit baptism. This is fire baptism, to be immersed in fire. To, and, and when something is immersed in fire, 
then what happens to it? Well, it is consumed. It is burned up. And John says that when Jesus comes, one who's coming after me, okay, when he comes, the Messiah comes, he will bring this immersion in fire. Yes, an immersion of the Holy Spirit also, but also an immersion in fire. And by the way, this doesn't mean that Jesus is the one who sends or brings or performs the destruction. No, it means that the destruction comes because Jesus arrived and, here's the key, these religious leaders reject him. All right? So, again, this goes back to this bear fruits worthy repentance. If they were to repent and realize that they were following a twisted and perverted form of what God really wanted for them, then they would turn around go a different direction and realize that God wanted something completely different for them than the way they were behaving, and that would align them with Jesus, with the Messiah. If they were to turn from the direction they were going, then they would end up walking in the same direction as Jesus, and they would have accepted him and believed in him and followed him the way many of the Jewish people did, including his disciples. Okay, so, and then by that, they would have escaped the immersion or baptism of fire. But because they didn't, but because they didn't repent, because they didn't turn from their ways, then they continued on the path they were on, and as a result, rejected Jesus and his claims to be the Messiah, his offer of eternal life. And as a result of that, they suffered the consequences of their decision, which was to be immersed in fire, consumed by the fire of judgment uh, that came upon them in AD 70, which again, John warned about, prophesied about earlier. All right, then we have this final image uh, down later in verse 12 about the unquenchable fire. I think you're seeing a theme here, but this follows this image of the chaff getting burned with fire. And uh, Jesus, or John says that the Messiah will gather the grain into the barn while the chaff gets burned with this unquenchable fire. So the interesting thing about unquenchable fire, the word here, unquenchable, doesn't mean fire that never goes out. What it actually means, it's the Greek word asbestos, which is interesting because we all know about asbestos in buildings, Um, but it's the Greek word uh, asbestos, it means unquenchable, and all it means is that the fire completely burns up what it ignites, okay? Uh, The fire completes its task of burning. It fully consumes whatever it is burning. And uh, as a result of this, by the way, some use verses like this to teach annihilationism, that people who go to hell after they die will be completely consumed and burned up. Again, those people who argue that from this text are reading hell into this passage, and they're still putting, sending people to a place of eternal suffering and torment, and yeah, it might only be for, I don't know, a couple thousand years or a couple million years or however long it might be, but it's still God suffering and uh, God sending people to be suffered and to torture in, in burning, screaming agony of hell forever and ever, and I don't believe God does that. Jesus wouldn't do that, neither does God. So it's so much better to see that this phrase, unquenchable fire, follows the same imagery that we've seen all the way throughout. All right? The fire sets, the chaff is set on fire, and the unquenchable fire, it burns all the chaff. Then, obviously, when there's no more chaff to burn, the fire does go out. And, uh, by the way, this, this word asbestos also can refer to quicklime, 
it is um, it was made in lime kilns of the ancient world, and it, it was used for various purposes. Sometimes in warfare purposes, uh, sometimes for coverings on buildings, and so on. It, it could be used in art and construction. And what is very interesting as well is when a human body is burned, it leaves behind this fine white powdery ash, which is very similar to asbestos uh, or, or calcium oxide. And uh, this is what we previously we looked at Isaiah 30 through 12. That's what Isaiah is talking about as well. Okay. Now, chaff doesn't burn eternally. Instead, it burns up quite quickly and then it's gone. And when that happens, the fire goes out. So this word unquenchable it doesn't mean the fire burns forever and ever. It means the fire burns until there's nothing left to burn, and then it goes out. It burns hot and fast until there's nothing left to burn. And even when it's done, there's hardly any trace that the fire was ever there. Okay, uh, Even the ash might be super fine, super light, and it blows away, and there's no more memory, no more trace that anything was there. One of the ways we know about this is because Eusebius, historian, in his Ecclesiastical History, writes about a Christian martyr named Julian, who was burned to death for being a Christian. And in his history, Eusebius describes the fire that burned Julian as being an immense fire. And what's very, very interesting is that the words, the Greek words Eusebius uses to describe that immense fire are puri espesto, which are exactly the same words John the Baptist uses here to describe this unquenchable fire. So it could be immense fire of Eusebius. Now, in Eusebius, is Eusebius saying that this Christian martyr, Julian, was sent to burn forever and ever in the flames of eternal hell? (laughs) No, we think that martyrs receive a special place of honor and blessing with God in eternity in heaven. God doesn't send martyrs to burn forever in hell, and that's not what Eusebius meant. And he uses those same exact words there that John the Baptist is using here, which hint that probably, most likely, especially in the context, John the Baptist doesn't have eternal suffering burning forever in hell in mind either. This is a hot, immense fire that burns burns completely, and when it's done, there's nothing left to see. All right? So that's the way Eusebius meant it, and that is the way John the Baptist meant it as well. The bodies of the Christian martyrs are reduced to ash. They're not sent to everlasting torment in hell. And that's what John has in mind as well. For, again, going back to verses 7 and 8, the destruction of Jerusalem, the religious leaders, their ways, their teachings, their traditions, a lot of what they, they, they worked for, and their plans and their goals and their dreams, everything they tried to accomplish, all is going to burn away with unquenchable fire like chaff. And when it's done, there will be nothing left. And that is, in fact, what happened within one generation of John speaking these words. In AD 69 and 70, Some Jewish people tried to revolt against the Roman Empire, and in response, Rome sent its military to Jerusalem and burned the city down. Its walls were torn down, the temple was destroyed, thousands, maybe even hundreds of thousands of people were killed, and the city was burned to to the ground, and the rest of the nation scattered over the face of the earth. 
And for roughly 1,900 and, well, 900 years or so, Jerusalem was no more. It was just a wasteland. So uh, in, until it became a city again, a country again, the city of uh, the country of Israel, nation of Israel again in 1948. And of course, we're still struggling with some of that. They're still struggling with some of that over in Israel today. But anyway, the point is, notice even the unquenchable fire that came upon Jerusalem. Yes, it performed its work, but that didn't mean that Jerusalem never came back because Jerusalem is there today. Okay. The, the, the fire burned Jerusalem until there was nothing left to burn, until there was just a pile of rubble and a heap of ash, and all the people were scattered, and everything that the religious leaders had worked for was gone and done away with. But Jerusalem came back, all right? And, and so once again, it's not referring to some everlasting suffering or everlasting flame or being tortured and burned forever in the pit of hell, or even when something is burned, you'll never hear from it again. It never comes back again because Jerusalem was burned and it came back. And in fact, this also is what Jeremiah the prophet prophesied. He said that if the people of Jerusalem did not turn from their disobedience, then an unquenchable fire would be kindled upon the gates and the palaces of Jerusalem. That's Jeremiah 17, 27. And guess what? In 586 B.C., Right? Nebuchadnezzar came and he burned the city. He destroyed the temple. He raised Jerusalem to the, t- to the ground. But then Jerusalem came back and it was rebuilt, as we know, with Ezra and Nehemiah. All right? and, and so then in the days of John the Baptist and Jesus, they warned again, look, if you don't change your ways, the same thing is going to happen in your day that happened in the days of Jeremiah. And of course it did. Once again, the Roman military comes this time. They burn Jerusalem down and destroy the temple. Unquenchable fire comes again. But then Jerusalem rises from the ashes all over again. And it's one of the beautiful cities in the world today. John is just following in the prophetic steps of Jeremiah, saying, Jewish leaders, religious leaders, you don't want to happen to you what happened to the people in the days of Jeremiah, do you? No. So change your ways. Repent. Turn around, follow God, obey God, do what God wants, so that you can avoid the fire, the being immersed in fire, being thrown into the fire, this unquenchable fire that will destroy you and your ways. John is not warning them about hell, about screaming, suffering, torment forever in the flames and pit of never-ending hell. He's not even, he doesn't have that in mind. It's a warning about the people and their ways and their country and their temple and their city and their, 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 everything they've worked for in life, right? He is saying, fire is coming, and if you don't repent, then once it is ignited, it will not be extinguished, and there will be nothing you can do to stop it until there is nothing left to burn. John, I'm sorry, John the Baptist in Matthew 3 is not teaching about hell or the eventual annihilation of people in hell. He's only talking about the temporal destruction that would come upon the nation of Israel if they did not repent and return to God. Throughout this text, he uses his imagery of pruning and burning to invite his listeners to make a change in their life. Because if they don't, then something bad will come into their life here and now. Again, get out of your mind this idea that John is warning people that if they don't have enough good works, they are going to burn forever in the pit of hell. It's a horrible teaching, 
and it's not what John is talking about. All right? Now, as we know, the nation of Israel did not warn, did not heed John's warning, and they did end up uh, getting destroyed when the Roman military came upon them in AD 69 and 7. So that's Matthew 3, verses 10 through 12. The image of fire we see was just a warning about this life and not a warning about everlasting punishment in hell. Next week, we're going to be turning to Matthew 13 and talking about the parable of the wheat and the tares. And more wheat, more tares, weeds, and so on, and very similar terminology that we see here in Matthew chapter 3. So you'll want to make sure we join you join me for that episode and maybe even take a look at it in advance. We also have this concept of weeping and gnashing of teeth, which we've talked about previously. So you might have an idea of what the parable of the wheat and the tares is all about. So make sure you join us next week for that. Now, between now and then, I really do encourage you at least to pre-order a copy of my book, What is Hell? All of these podcast episodes on hell have been made into a book, and the ebook version is available for pre-order on Amazon right now. Now, right now, it's $2.99 on Amazon. I'm telling you right now, I finished typesetting the book last week, and the book is 360 pages. It's the longest book I've ever written. Uh, And so what that means is once I publish it, the price will be going up. I'm not sure what I will price it to yet, but at least now, while it's on pre-order, it's going to be $2.99. So if you like eBooks and you want to pre-order it, go to Amazon, pre-order your book for $2.99 because it will be going up once it is published in the first week of June. All right? Hey, thank you so much for listening. And thank you for supporting me in any way you can, either by buying some of my books joining my online discipleship group, or you know what? If you don't have the funds right now, just telling some other people about my podcast or my blog uh, or some of the resources I have at redeeminggod.com. All right? Hey, thanks again. We'll see you next week when we look at the parable of the wheat and the tares in Matthew chapter 13. See you then.